My name is Keith Beavers, and I've lived in New Jersey for like six years now. And I think it's very clear that, I mean, I think I'm right here. Taylor Ham is a pork roll. What's going on, wine lovers from the Fine Pair Podcasting Network? This is the Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers, and I am the tastings director. I don't know what accent that was. Of Vine Pear. So we've laid the groundwork for champagne. Let's get ready for some human history. We talk about Romans and kings and saints. When the humans arrive, things get weird all over the planet. <laughs> Sorry. In Champagne, in Northern France, a really great way to start understanding Champagne and how the wine culture emerged around here and evolved into what it is today is to understand how important this part of France is. To the north of this area, you have Flanders. And to the south, you have Switzerland. To the east, you have Paris. And to the west, you have the Rhine, one of the most important European rivers, like, ever. And the two centers of all this are, well, one town is very famous called Reims, or Reims. I'm, I mean, this one's a very hard one to pronounce, so please bear with me. I'm just going to say Reims from now on. I'm sorry. I wish I could actually pronounce the French way. One day I might. I will work on it. But that town is the center of all the Champagne stuff, but also a town just south of that called Chalon-sur-Maine, now today called Chalon and Champagne. From pre-Roman times up until the modern times, this place on earth in Europe, in northern France, was a major crossroad of trade routes because of how its proximity to all of these larger populated areas. And the countryside or the Grand East of France was very prosperous because of that. Um, they had these things called Christmas festivals, which would last up to six weeks of just people coming from all over the well, all over Europe to enjoy the the local whatever they had to offer. The consequence of all of this uh, beneficial everything meant that it was also a very contested land, and it has seen bloodshed through about, I don't know, over 1,000, probably 1,500 years. In 882, the Normans invaded. In 926, there was a rebellion against a king. In 937, the Hungarians decimated the region. Then there was the Hundred Years' War, which was basically the 14th century into the 15th century. The 14th century also brought with it the Black Death. And in the 17th century, there were a series of civil wars or rebellions called the Le, Le Fronde, which just meant a bunch of princes and royals and citizens were really angry at the current king and came at the king, and the king basically said, nope, and subdued them all. That's a fun story. It was about taxes. 
It's always about taxes. But before all that, there was even some craziness going on during um, 1914 in the First World War. But the most important one, I think, is 451 to 455. This is when Attila the Hun and the, the, the Hunnic Empire was trying to move its way into Europe to take over what the Romans had. And at that point, the Romans were like, no, you can't have this. Weirdly enough, the current emperor at the time, I can't remember his name, but he was actually friends or allies with Attila the Hun. But Attila's like, I still want to invade your land. So this Roman Empire emperor's like, yo, I'm going to grab my Fodorati because we talked about Fodorati in the Bordeaux series. These are a bunch of you know other tribes coming into the fold of the Roman Empire fighting for the Roman Empire. So Attila the Hun comes in through the north, gets into the Champagne area in a place called the Catalonian Plains, just off uh, out of the town of Chalon sur Maine. And the Romans actually, with the Fodorati, stop Attila the Hun from coming into Europe. It's a big deal because history would look different if the Huns made it through and conquered that part of Europe and Northern France, but they didn't. And that was the last time that the, the Hunnic empire actually attempted this and until the Hun died and it was over. And throughout all of this conflict throughout history, that one battle is still something that people talk about in Champagne. There's actually a book called, um, Champagne, how the world's most glamorous wine triumphed over war and hard times. And just in the beginning of that book, the author and their friend actually do the whole thing in Champagne where they get the, the bubbly wine, they get a, a lunch, they put it into a picnic basket, and they actually walk to the Catalonian Plains just to have lunch on the field, they think, where Attila the Hun was repulsed. So it's a thing. But that battle actually opened up the rest of France for invasion from other people throughout history. And one of the biggest ones was the Franks. And you'll remember in the Bordeaux series, in the first episode, I talked about Clovis I, considered the first monarch of France, giving France its monarchy. And it's right here in the fifth century where we start really getting serious mentions of land under vine. Now, obviously, well, the Romans probably had vines, but there's just no evidence of any wine making of anything they really did there. There are remnants of their presence. There's actually right around Rennes, Reims, uh, there is a big sort of um, Roman artifact. It's a big kind of gateway almost to a city, but it's here in the fifth century we really start understanding the history of Champagne. And it's literally between a friendship between Clovis and the bishop that ended up baptizing him. That man's name was Remigius or Remigius, R-E-M-I-G-I-U-S. Remigius was born into the high society of Gallo-Roman Empire. Um, he's actually from a town that Clovis conquered, but he rose through the ranks of um, the church pretty quickly to the point, and this is crazy, he was elected Bishop of Reims at the age of 21. And he was actually a layman. He wasn't even part of the, 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 the church yet. I mean, what were you doing at 21? I don't want to talk about what I was doing. So what we have here is we have Clovis, who is not... Christian yet, 
but is conquering all these lands and he's trying to, he's killing people and taking land, but he's also trying to make some friends and trying to align himself with the right people. And he actually aligns himself with Remigius. His name became St. Remy. So let's just call him St. Remy. He aligns himself with St. Remy and they become friends in some sort of allied way to the point where he's like, look, I want to be baptized in the church in Reims and I want you to baptize me along with 3,000 other people to prove that I am going to be a Christian king. And St. Remy's like, yeah, sounds good. So they go to the cathedral at Reims on December 25th, 496 AD and St. Remy baptizes Clovis I beginning the French monarchy. And because of this friendship or whatever, the, whatever it was, King Clovis granted St. Remy a bunch of tracts of land in a place that has nothing but beautiful, white, ancient chalk and marls underneath. And I know in Bordeaux, we didn't talk about monks, but here we are about to talk about monks. For the next eight centuries, this became the spiritual center of France. Reims, specifically the cathedral. I've been into the cathedral. I feel like an ant. It is one of the most stunning buildings I've ever been into. It's just absolutely insane. And just to stand in that cathedral and thinking, well, this is where, this is where Clovis was baptized. <laughs> it's crazy. And because of this religious prominence and popularity of this area, you can kind of see how when I say this place is prosperous, you kind of get it, right? Wherever the church was, there was money. So abbeys start popping up all over the place. Nobility starts popping up all over the place. And what, is abbey, what do abbeys do? They have vines. What do nobility do? They like what the abbeys are doing, and they have vines as well. So we start seeing land under vine in the Champagne region surrounding Reims and Chalon sur Maine. And this presence of land under vine, abbeys, nobility, the you know, the big cathedral, all of the, the Christmas markets, the trade routes, all of this built and built that by the ninth century, we had our first real kind of defined wine regions or zones in Champagne. There was the, an area just south of Reims called Montagne de Rams and the wines they coming out of there, they called Val de Montagne or the wines of the mountain. And then there was also the region of the Marne Valley, um, just along the Marne River. And that was called Val de Riviere, wines of the river. So now we have basically, this is nascent champagne wine region, wine lovers. And similar to what happened in Bordeaux when the British started getting into the left bank here, the French royalty and nobility and all the just people who wanted to drink wine, I think wealthy, mostly wealthy people, were talking about these two wine regions and actual very specific villages within these wine regions that they enjoyed. On the Montagne, or the mountain, it's not really a mountain, but it's a big hill, Bouzy and Verzenay were two villages people were talking about, and Epernay and I were being talked about in the Marne Valley. And today, all of these communes, except for Epernay, are now Grand Cru villages. Epernay is very important, of course. It's also a big port town on the left bank of the Marne. And these places were being singled out for their quality. I mean, this makes sense. 
all these abbeys, all these monks are around here and they're planting vines. And it just so happens that the, the, the soil, which we talked about in this, the first episode of this series is just ready for some vines to be tended to the right way. You know what I mean? So Champagne started having a good thing going on here. There's all these coronations going on. It's a very prosperous place. There's a bunch of trade happening. I mean, the Marne connected to the Seine, so that was awesome, straight on to Paris. A lot of this land under Vine was actually given to these abbeys from the tracts of land that were given to St. Remy by Clovis. There was this very famous sort of not very authenticated will called the Testament of St. Remy, where he just gave away all this land to all these abbeys. And this is kind of how all this got started. So everything's going pretty well. But one thing, I mean, these wines were gaining some sort of sophistication because of the popularity of the certain places in which the wines are being made. This whole area is being talked about. Popes apparently really dug the eye region and the wines coming out of there. So just so you guys know, these wines are not bubbly. Yet, these wines are still wines, and they are made from Pinot Noir and a grape called Fromentu, which we've talked about in previous episodes, in the actually the, the La Rochelle episode. And the wines are kind of pinkish because there's a they're probably blending everything together, but because of the soils, people didn't realize this yet. But because of the soils and that specific climate up there. These wines were popping, and people really liked them. But one thing about these wines, they were very acidic, high acidity, which is fine, but by the 11th century, all these coronation, this coronation thing was made, a, was big business for this area. And there was a lot of celebrating and a lot of imbibing, a lot of drinking, and a lot of fun. The thing is, because you're having all these people from all over the place, unfortunately, for the Champenois, these big parties did have champagne, pinkish, awesome champagne from the Marne Valley and the Montagne de Reims, but they're also drinking Burgundy because it was fuller bodied than the wines of the local area. Ugh. This gave the Champenois a bunch of resolve. And <laughs> when you're reading about this stuff, it, took, it says it took four coronations for the wine-making culture of Champagne to improve itself even more so that at one point, after however many years that is, these coronations, you know, a king lives and a king dies, coronate, die, whatever, that it improved to the point where the locals really, and the people that came, enjoyed the wines of Reams in its surrounding area more so, and those wines are actually getting more expensive and surpassed that of the Burgundian wines. And the Champenois is like, yeah, we got this local market on lock now. And in 1575, the coronation of Henry III marked the first royal banquet where only wines from Champagne were served. No Burgundian wine. So it looks like the Champenois finally got one up on Burgundy. Not really. And this is how much people listened to royalty back in the day. It's crazy. In 1694, Louis XIV, the Sun King's doctor, insisted he only drink Burgundy wines because the wines from Champagne were still too acidic. 
So the king's drinking Burgundian wine. The champagne people are like, wait, what? What? And I'm not sure if this was a direct response from that particular edict by the doctor of the Sun King, but it was around this time that the winemakers of Champagne started to change the way they made wine. It's almost like they, they got their success, but then they got knocked down and they're like, we have to really just change the way we're doing this and reinvent ourselves to appease the people that are literally right here in our town and beyond. Obviously he was a King of all France who didn't want to drink champagne wine. And the answer was not making red wine because it was, this is, I'm not really sure about this, but I feel like they were known for their pale pinkish wines. So what they ended up doing was making Von Gris, this is where they start making white wine from red wine grapes. Von Gris, if you listen to the, our rosé episode, is a way of making rosé wine where you just, you access the slightest color from the skins, getting a very pale pink wine that looks a little gray, Von Gris. So what they were doing is they were excluding white grapes and just making white wine from red wine grapes. This made the wines a little bit bigger because these wines, when you make white wine out of a red wine, you still get a little depth. If you've ever had a white Pinot Noir, you can feel that. Also, this is pre-modern technology, so it's still a lot of you know organic material in these wines, even though they were being vinified white as red wine grapes. But even though these wines had some more depth to them, they still had elegance and finesse and a sense of delicacy. So what is happening right here? The wine in Champagne was not being known for power. It was being known for its liveness, its beautiful elegance, like I said. And this moment begins a separation from other wine regions in style, but also it sets champagne on the path for a kind of transformation. And in the next episode, we'll understand the full nature of that transformation. Yeah. Dude's name's Dom something. I'll talk to you next week. Vine Pair Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week.